This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled Teachings, Practices, and Truth, recorded February 15th, 2009 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to talk a little bit about our teachings and our practices and our truth. Reading or listening to any of the teachings of the mystics can be a bit bewildering for us if we read them as prose. We need to read them as poetry. We don't want to read them as if they are telling us something about how things are, telling us the truth, because they're not. The truth that we are, though we talk a lot, and here I am today, cannot be spoken. And most mystics that you read will come to that point where they say, the truth cannot be spoken. The classic case of that is Lao Tzu. And of course then he went on, as we know, <laughs> to say a lot. So one of the teachings that, and you can really pick any one, but let's just pick one. The idea of oneness. The oneness of all things. The oneness of the universe. Now, if we believe that it is all one, we are immediately deluded. Because the oneness that's being pointed to is not what we think. It's not a belief. Let me give you a few quotes about oneness. Abin al-Arabi, a Sufi, he says, There are no two things. And no distinctions can be made. Here's another one, Huang Po, Zen master. He says, all the visible universe is the Buddha. On seeing one thing, you see it all. Sing Stan, another Zen master, he says, the 10,000 things are as they are of single essence. Shankara, a great Hindu sage, said, there is only the supreme one without a second. And finally, Jesus. For me, all has come forth. I am all. From reading these and from hearing these, you get a very strong sense of what's being spoken of. But this is the kind of stuff that you could hear at... Um, at a party or at a bar, talking about how it's all one. But that's not it. And the reason that's not it is because it's an idea. The oneness is in the recognition of it. And nothing short of that. These teachings are not intended as prose. So, Whenever you read a spiritual teaching, like there is only one, use this teaching as a recipe. Some are more amenable to this than others. Some are, you have to kind of be very creative to find a, 
a recipe to fit it. Um, but all is one. Well, how can that be? All one. Me and this. So we start looking. We start examining. We need, we need a little curiosity. But not a grasping curiosity. Just an open, childlike interest. Not buying the, the, the prevailing story of things. Now, certainly, in the world of relative things, we do. And we need to. And it's fine. But it's never the truth. So teachings are there to direct us back to what is truly here. Not to some idea. So when we hear a teaching, we do a practice, and the practice is not just to get caught up in the practice, but to move to the truth, to see the truth as it is. I have this teaching by John Scottis Aragina. I'm going to read it to you. It sort of gets to the heart of the issue here. And this is a teaching that represents a perfect recipe for practice. He says, Everything that is understood and sensed is nothing else but the apparition of what is not apparent, the manifestation of the hidden, the comprehension of the incomprehensible, the utterance of the unutterable. So to try to understand in mere words, it's just ludicrous. He goes on. Everything that is understood is the understanding of the unintelligible. It is the body of the bodiless, the essence of the superessential. The superessential. What might that be? The form of the formless. The materialization of the spiritual. The place of that which is in no place. The time of the timeless. And the definition of infinity. Can we do that? Can we define infinity? Well, sure we can. But what have we got when we're done? We've got a bunch of words. We haven't actually experienced it. But you know, when you... Try to imagine the end of space and you go, okay, so now I'm moving through space and I come to this point. That's the end? But then what's on the other side? You know, when we do those kinds of things as a child, we're doing the very thing that the mystics are, are entreating us to do. We're looking beyond our stories, beyond... <clears throat> The form. Mystics teach from the perspective of no perspective. And yet they use words, some structure, a perspective. But they're not teaching from that. So what we do is we hear the words and we delve between the lines. And at some point, we'll recognize even the lines themselves 
are the space between. The sense of me itself is purely imagined moment to moment. Even the idea of moment to moment is imagined. The I, the sense of I, is ongoing images that appear to be a single thing. They are rising and passing constantly, constantly. How is it possible that the body of the bodiless, the form of the formless, can be construed as separate existence? How can we actually experience it that way? This is probably the greatest mystery in mysticism. How do we do it? And of course, when we see how it's done, and we really see it all the way to the core, we're awake. We are no longer deluded. So let's investigate this for a moment. Just kind of close your eyes and draw a circle in your mind, a little white circle perfect circle. However you do it, some people are better at this than others, doesn't matter. It may just be a flickering circle. If you can make it solid, great. Now notice what you've done. You have a circle. It has an inside and an outside. What creates the circle? How is this done? Do you see? There is this little distinction, a little line that is drawn. Is the line real? It's imagined, totally imagined. But if we pretend it is there, then we have a circle. It's wonderful. Creativity in progress. So notice the qualities of this circle. And notice that without the imagined line between inner and outer, there is no circle. It's just this little distinction. Now, see if you can notice there is a purely imaginary distinction between the circle and the space that it is drawn within. Notice the space of your mind. And now there's a circle in the space. Same distinction, isn't it? The circle is somehow not space when we hold it there. But then just let it go. Where is it? 
Now, this is probably the most interesting piece of this of all. Notice the purely imagined distinction between the space of your mind and the awareness of it. The awareness of the space appears to be separate from you, from the one that is aware. How can that happen? This is the process of objectification. We objectify, we make real, just as we did with the circle. We do the same thing with the space of our mind. We do the same thing with the entire world. So this is a very simple little exercise, and it seems, you know, it's like being in kindergarten almost. But yet, it is the most profound if we actually see into what we're looking at, what we're talking about. So once again, reading between the lines, actually doing this little experiment, we begin to see the nature of what we are. We begin to glimpse it. We're not locked out. We are like that lion in that little story. There was this lion, this little cub, who was born and got separated from its mother. And it found some sheep. And so it started hanging out with the sheep, and it believed it was a sheep. And it lived with the sheep for a long time. It grew up, became a big, strong lion, but it still thought it was a sheep. It was sort of undernourished because it was eating grass. And this this big lion gets up on the mountaintop and sees there's this lion down there. And it's out in the field with the other sheep. And he was embarrassed. And he goes down and he gets a hold of this lion. He says, what's wrong with you? You have food all around you. And you're not eating them. Well, I'm a sheep. I'm one of them. No, you're not. Yes, I am. And so he grabs him by the scruff of the neck, drags him to the pond, and has him look at his reflection. And, oh, I'm a lion. This is like our predicament. We don't realize that we are the vastness of being itself. But of course, in our case, we go and look in the mirror and we go, yep, that's me. But it's not me. It's just an image, a reflection, a story. When you think of yourself right now, feel, feel what it is to be somebody. Just kind of feel. What is it? What is this, this basic... Uh, this, this. Feel that? It's a feeling, isn't it? There is this sense of me at the core. That's what we're aware of. It's an emotional sense of existing. 
And we identify with this. Wholeness, vastness of being, is pretending to be me. Wholeness loves to play. It creates all of these images. It loves it. But once this happens, and we're identified with this sensation, this sense of me, and that's who we are, suddenly, ah, we're separate. We don't feel whole. We're afraid. We're anxious. So we start trying to feel better. We start to struggle with our life, trying to feel whole. And then the more we struggle in this way, the more we cut ourselves off from our wholeness. We just keep creating more stories and images and on and on and on. Belief arises out of the need to feel better. And belief is made up of all of these imaginary images and stories. But there is nowhere, no body, in no time. So how is all this happening once again? Me wants to exist as a point of reference. But there are no points of reference. But without that point of reference that we believe that we are, we're worrying. So where are you right now? I'm in this room, I know that, and I know that this room is in Eugene, Oregon. I got that, okay. Oh, but where's Eugene, Oregon? Well, it's in the United States. It's in North America. It's it's on the planet Earth. Notice the story gets really far-fetched after a while. It's a ball of Earth floating in space. We believe this stuff. Where is the earth? Well, it's in the Milky Way. Where is the Milky Way? It's just space. Timeless, infinite space. Okay, well then, when is this? Well... It's, it's February, right? Is that right? Yeah. It's uh, 2009. Does that tell us something? Uh, let's see. Um, I have a past. Um, I remember being a little kid. That happened once. That was in the past. And we're moving towards the future. These are very lame stories when you look at them. (laughs) When you really examine them, they fall apart. But I believe I was a child. I have pictures. I can show you. What are those pictures? What are they? You look at them. They are lines and color. They are one-dimensional. And they are arising and passing away constantly. We just think they're constant. 
we have turned the world upside down. Striving to be something, we have hidden the reality. Now then we come to the question, well, who are you? Who is this person? Now, of course, we could, you know, we've read the spiritual teachings. We already know, well, I'm awareness. Are you? Is that what you are? Do you believe that? If you believe that, you are totally deluded. Not true. We said before, what you are cannot be spoken. So what are you? My name's Todd. I live down in Umqua. I work at the hospital. I'm a person. I, uh, I was born, my parents did the dirty deed, <laughs> and I was born. That's a really lame story. <laughs> these, all of these stories just keep leading us off. Why do we believe this stuff? We're afraid. We're afraid not to believe it. There is a certain futility involved with recognizing that you don't exist. And only when you have the experience of that futility do you know what I'm speaking of. There is no point to anything that we do. Oh, very quickly, we're putting away our little meditation cushion and we're off to the movies or something. But as we go along, we begin to see more and more that all of our efforts to feel better don't work. They don't actually make us feel better. We start to recognize that there is a kind of a facade that is being created. We are creating it. We're doing it ourselves. Or so it appears. And we're living in that facade. And at some point we just realize that we can't actually feel better through anything of the world. We can't actually understand our own being through the world. And at that point, we start to show up at little meetings like this. Because we realize that something is, something's wrong. Something's missing. And we begin to practice allowing our attention to not run from thought to thought to emotion thought, to thought, to emotion, to thought, in this constant fashion, which just creates this tapestry of self, and at the same time, hides away, moment to moment, I might add, hides away 
the reality of our truth. So, beliefs protect us from the insecurities of separateness. We've created separateness, and now we have beliefs to protect us. It's very complicated. What we start to notice when we begin to do little practices of meditation, we begin to notice that we hold our very strongest beliefs around areas of our deepest fears. And so our belief in self is sort of a pivotal point, a pivotal belief, because without a self, without a me to believe in, this gap opens up. We have a way of creating spiritual stories to protect us, little little stories that protect us from this gap that we see. We keep seeing it, and we create a little a nice little spiritual story to feel better about it. But what we see is a psychological death, a total, absolute non-existence of a person that person that we call me. We see that starkly from moment to moment, and very quickly our minds come back in to embellish it, to make it feel better in some way, to kind of erase that sense of abject futility that is just descending upon us. And then... It's a really cool spiritual thing we saw until we see it again. And there it is. (gasps) But at some point, again, we begin to recognize that this keeps showing up. Maybe it would be of some value if I just let it be there without trying to feel better about it. Maybe I would just let it be. Feel the horror of it. Of non-existence. And when we do that, finally, because we've sort of been pushed into the corner, we don't, we realize we have no choice. And some of us find ourselves in circumstances that lend themselves to this more quickly than others, but eventually we all get to this place, or at least it appears that way. And we let it be. And when we let it be, just as it is, as horrifying as it is, and we don't turn away, it's not what our minds think at all. It's actually just the opposite. We've been running from this, creating stories, creating a world to get away from this, which is our beloved. It's our own heart, our own being. But you know, there's, there are dragons guarding the ancient palace where the teachings are lodged. And we must be able to face these dragons. And in our case, the dragon of fear and horror is the most compelling of all. One of the reasons that we have trouble with 
this fear, this, this horror, is that delusion is powerful. It is our nature harnessed. And our nature is the only true power. It is the only power there is. We have found a way to be separate that is powerful. We take our our deepest fears and we spread it out in time. We spread it out through time so that it's not so shocking to us. We'll experience it as just feeling a little neurotic, worried, bored, you know, frustrated, a little angry, a little disturbed. These are all manifestations of this this one fear. Time is based on belief, as we said before. Although it is coming forth from reality, it is not based on reality. It's like a, it's an amazing process where we just keep seeing images and we put them together and we make this sense, this sequential sense of events. Just like we do with our sense of self. There's an image of me and another and another and another and another and another. And we just sort of go, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. I look in the mirror. Yep, there I am. When we believe in separateness, time is immediately reified. All objects reify time. Whenever we see an object, we see this. We hold this to be a solid object. It's amazing we can do that. The very process of believing this to be a solid object creates the time in which it is arising. Otherwise, how could it be an object? An object implies a past. Ah, see, there it is. There it is. It's happening in time. Or is it? So, whatever we believe simply needs to be examined. We need to examine this whole thing of time and how we're creating time. And so we'll find, as we really delve into this, these are all manifestations of the divine vastness of being showing themselves. Then we relax and we let them be just as they are. And it's seeing them just as they are that frees them. Falling in love is a great experience of seeing the truth, knowing the truth. We've met someone or something, and we love it. We love this person. And what, it, what is happening is we don't want anything. We have everything. There's nothing to get. Nothing. We're, we're, we're totally full. 
love. Everything has changed. We're no longer, we don't even care if we die. You know, you, you read all these stories about lovers that saved their loved one, you know, risked their life, threw themselves into the fire, whatever. The point is that love transcends our separateness. It changes everything. We are no longer dwelling in this selfish striving. When we do our practices, it's so important that we don't just sit and observe the breath with our mind. We want to feel the immediacy of our experience. We want to feel it. When we're examining the sense of self, we want to feel what that is. We're not trying to split hairs. We're not trying to understand something. So it's a process of opening. Now, when we open with our practices, we are freed. But we aren't freed if we expect something from our practices. Because that is our sense of self. So I'm going to read you a quote from St. Ephraim of Syria, a Christian mystic. And before I read it, I just want to say that he is referring to sin in this. And sin is what I've been talking about. It's that active ignoring of our experience. He says, here within you are the riches of heaven, if you desire them. Here, O sinner, is the kingdom of God within you. Enter into yourself. Seek eagerly and you will find it without great travail. Outside you is death. And the door to death is sin. Enter within yourself and remain in your heart. For there is God. He says, outside you is death. Well, yes, there is nothing outside of you. And if you believe there is, then you are running towards a separate self. Once we have made space solid, our mind cannot fix it. And our mind cannot help us. Remember what John Aragina said. Everything that is understood and sensed is nothing else but the apparition of what is not apparent. We must allow awareness to feel its way back. It requires attention and this childlike curiosity. So a great clue to all of this is just that feeling itself, what we experience always, feeling, is grounded in now. If we just pay attention to feeling, we are present. We are presence. Feel it. Let's do a little experiment here just to, to see if we can appreciate what is being talked about here. So just for a moment, 
feel what it is to have a body. Just feel the body just as it is. Consider it made of some kind of uh, eternal light. Just feel the sensations arising and passing. Now close your eyes and bring your hands out in front of you. Without thinking about them, just let them be there. Feel them. Notice the mind wants to tell you things. Just let those thoughts go by. It's okay that they're there. Just let them go. And just feel the pulsations of nowness arising and passing. Even the word pulsation indicates a past. Even these words, they all are just pointing to the immediacy Now, open your eyes, gaze into the hands, and experience the naked visual sensations. And notice that these sensations are very different from the bodily hand sensations that we felt. Notice they are going on concurrently. You can feel your hands and then allow the visual sensations to play. These sensations are all arising and passing. Feel them just as they are. See how we superimpose the two together to support the dream of hands. Now notice names and designations of fingers and the stories of my hands. These two are sensations. Notice they are very different than the feelings of the hands and the visual sensations of the hands. All are contriving to give us this sense of time-boundedness, giving us a sense of hands. This is how we create what John Scottis Aragina called the visibility of the invisible. Now let's look at something a little different. Take your right index finger and touch the back of your left hand. Just touch it and hold the index finger there. Feel the sensation. Now, 
let it go. Now touch it again and let it go. And again and let it go. Now, was this one touching or was this many touchings? What would you say? Anybody? Many. Many. There's this one. And there's this one. There's this one. But when it is not happening, did it exist? Was it actually there? You see, it's just a memory. It's a story. And yet, each one is a new touching. New. New. Now put your finger on the back of your hand and consider. Is this an ongoing, continuous sensation? Or is it just now? Now. Now. Now, this may not come <clears throat> clean for you on your first attempts to do this. Some of you know exactly what I'm speaking of and going right to it. But it is, it is a practice. And this is how we come to see, come to experience our wholeness. To recognize our wholeness as it actually is rather than as a story. And that's everything I have for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Wesley. Um, this was very interesting. It was interesting for me. I, I think... Uh, I think you probably have maybe three to six talks that you gave, <laughs> all in a remarkably brief period of time. Um, and the, the one thing I'd like to ask about it, I've used uh, in my amateur work uh, in the church, I've used the, the image of, the, of uh, awareness, you are awareness, uh, as, a, as something to teach. And I, I know that that's, uh, that's just a word. It doesn't, um, it doesn't come with the experience of awareness at all, necessarily. But it does point in a direction. So when you're, you're emphasizing that we shouldn't use that word, or should use that word, or whatever, how we should use it, how... How do you suggest we use that in speaking with one another? Is there a way of using it that is less misleading than other ways? Or is it just a word so it's bound to be misleading? It's just a word and that's what we have. We can be more skillful sometimes. But to, to refer to awareness, one thing that's useful is just kind of like what I was doing at the beginning. To say, you know, I use this word, that's not the truth. And that can help you. <clears throat> Tom uh, Kurska, it's like he just sits on the now, and if you raise any kind of a question that's not sitting right in the now, he says, you know, why are you asking me these abstract intellectual questions? Come right back now. And 
<laughs> there are many, many teaching styles, and I, I have noticed that entertaining some complexity in questions can be useful, especially when first talking with someone. But then as you go along, you find that they're asking the same kinds of questions. So then it's useful to direct them to their own experience and have them look. Well, you're asking this question. What is this question really about? The questions are, are interesting because they're looking for an answer. You know, this is, what, this is why we ask questions, we want to answer. But you see, answers themselves are always just another question. It feels like an answer, but if we kind of hang out with it for a while, we realize, now I have questions about that. And this is how it is until we reach the truth, which you're not going to get from anyone. The truth is something that comes to us only through our own investigation. So. Yeah, or, yeah, as Joel likes to say, that every, I think, Joel, every mystical teaching is, a, is instructions for practice, which it you is. said, I think. Exactly, yes. Yes? Um, when you said that it's important to pay attention to feelings moment by moment, uh, Feelings, does that encompass emotional reactions? Oh, yes. Well, or just, I was thinking feelings, you know, physical sensations. Yes, all of it. So kind of what I was alluding to in this last little exercise. We start to notice that even our visual is sensation. We, you know, we, we have so much thought tied up in it that it's hard to tease those apart. But eventually we begin to recognize the naked suchness of visual phenomena arising and passing. And what's happening is we're putting a name on it constantly. We're, we're always putting our little word, our name on it. So yes, I know what that is now. We don't like it when things pop up and we don't know what they are because this is threatening to our sense of self. Our sense of self wants to feel comfortable with its beliefs. And so we always have a, a, a new designation. But all of it, you see, is feeling. It's all feeling. Emotions are just powerful feelings. Emotions are our sense of self, basically. Our wanting, our neediness, our sense of things not being right. And emotions are powerful practice. At the center, we have had little units in which we just focus on these emotions, on the, the emotions such as anger and desire, envy and pride and bewilderment. And it's very helpful because when we do that, we, we come to see their timeless nature. We see that they're all just arising now. And so it isn't what we think it is, it's just what it is, which is always showing itself anew, always fresh, always new. And it changes everything. Does that help your question? Okay, good. Yes, Ken. As a follower of the Janana path, um, I was struck by what you said a minute ago about uh, the, uh, the answer is the question. Yes. And I've known for a long time, you know, I've been in school all my life, so I, uh, every time you get a question answered, you suddenly realize, well, there's a whole host of new things lurking behind that, and it never ends, it never stops, you know, you, 
If you do get an answer, it's temporary. It's not only temporary, but it implies lots of other things. So to just flip that around and say the answer is the question, uh, that just, that, I just find it very helpful. And this is the thing that we have to realize is that if our mind wants to understand everything, we have to give it space to do that for a while. And we watch, we see how, how satisfying is this. It's not very satisfying after a while when we're watching. You have to really be aware of what's here. And so it comes to you organically that you must start where you are and with what you have. Whatever emotion is there, that's what you've got. You're not going to push away all these emotions to get to the good stuff. Those emotions, as they are, they are the good stuff. Because they're showing themselves to you. They want you to acknowledge them. And it's through the acknowledgement of them that we begin to heal. We just need to be aware of these emotions which we are always pushing away because we can't bear to be with them when they are, in fact, our beloved, our own enlightenment. Being willing to be with them, we are no longer fragmented. Does that make sense? I hope not. <laughs> Bill. Um, that was a great uh, talk, that pointing to this that you can't really uh, talk about. And um, it's, for me, it's like the simplicity is just astounding. When you come to, you know, just realize that Everything that changes is just an appearance. It can't be real because it comes and goes. And then there's that something that just holds all of this that the mind can never comprehend. And it's like thinking gets to be an obstruction because it's like you said, it's the feeling. Love, we talk about this love that encompasses everything. It's really a feeling. It's not a thinking, it's a feeling. It is a feeling. The mind can't go there. That's right, that's right. But, you know, once we really see this this nature of timelessness then you know all of our all of our thoughts and all of this stuff they're okay they're not really a problem we can live in the world it's fine it's not a contradiction at all but for practices we often will isolate out parts you know we go on retreat where we're just still and it's just so that we can recognize the truth of what we are. And in that recognition, then our thoughts, they're fine. They're not happening to me. They're just happening. Our emotions, they just happen to themselves. Everything is just arising and passing constantly. But that doesn't mean we have to, because we now are doing spiritual practices, need to push anything away. As a matter of fact, our, our practices are an embracing of all of it. We embrace what is here, allowing what is to be, and that is where our wholeness lies. Obviously. Right? So, okay, one last question and then we should... I'd like to go back to that Christian mystic from Tunisia, is it? Syria. Um, and I thought 
Mystics were beyond thinking of us as sinners. Uh, this is a Christian. Yeah. They have their own jargon. But, you know, I try to clarify that before I read the quote, because, it, you know, we hear the sinner stuff, and it's like, oh, my. I, I wanted to make this very clear. Sin is how we suffer. We ignore what is here. So that's what sin is. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of our immediate experience. We're running away. Trying to interpret what we see instead of just accepting it, maybe. Sin is our ignorance of the truth of what we are. So listen to it in that way again. Here within you are the riches of heaven if you desire them. Here, O sinner, and he's referring to the one that has been ignoring, here, O sinner, is the kingdom of God within you. So now you're looking. Enter into yourself. Seek eagerly and you will find it. Do you hear that? He's just basically saying sin is, is ignoring. So come out of your ignoring and pay attention to what you truly are. Yeah, sin is broader than I thought. I mean, it's... Yes. Sin is like you're bad boys and girls and that's something else. Yeah. I think what Todd's saying is sin is a Christian mystical term for delusion. Basically. There you go. Yeah. Good. Okay. Good. Thank you. I think the Greek word that has been translated into sin, English sin, has the etymological root of meaning missing the mark. Missing the mark. It's, uh, that's right. That's an archery term. And there's another word that comes from the Hebrew. And the Hebrew word is more like uh, rebelling against God, which we could translate as just rebelling against what is. You refuse to recognize and acknowledge what is, you're going to suffer. And so yeah. the wages of sin are suffering. So yeah, if you if you refuse to acknowledge timelessness in your life, you recognize the inherent womb-like nature is timeless, then you're no longer a sinner. It's very simple. There's no complexity in the truth. It's just our words make it so. That's everything that I have for you. If anybody would like to stick around afterwards and chat, I'd be happy to answer any further questions. So till we meet again, peace to you all. Thank you, Todd.